You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Wow, for the past 13 weeks, we have been looking at the essential elements of our shared Christian faith as outlined in the Apostles' Creed. And we've gone each and every week to the gospel writer, John, for scriptural foundation. We've looked at the gospels and at the letters, and today, in that vivid vision and revelation. And to the end of the creed, that as we just saw on the screen, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. We're talking about the very climax, the the very end of history. So it just seems fitting that we would look to the book that's at the end of the Bible, John's book of Revelation. Ah, that much debated book of Revelation. One of the problems we face when we turn uh, to this book is that it is so unlike the other books in the library that we call the Bible. It's so imaginarily rich in imagery and a wild, crazy mix of uh, metaphors. For example, in verse 2 of what we just read uh, today, we see a city wearing a dress. And in verse 22, there's a lamb on a throne. I mean, it's weird and it's wild and it's wonderful, like an artist whose vision breaks all of the boundaries of convention. And this this is what we call apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse, the zombie apocalypse. And we always think apocalypse means like really bad thing, when in fact, apocalypse is the Greek word meaning revelation. If you turn to the book of uh, Revelation in the original Greek, the title of the book would be the apocalypse ha-hoane of John, the apocalypse of John, the vision. And unveiling, and what it means, a revelation is the unveiling or the unfolding of things not previously known or which could not be known apart from this special kind of unveiling. And it's usually unveiled by a special messenger, uh, uh, an angel, or directly from the Lord. In the balance of Scripture, it includes uh, the books of uh, Joel, and Zechariah, little bits of Ezekiel and uh, parts of Isaiah and Daniel and certain portions of the gospel, for example, Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus himself was talking about and revealing about the end times. And reading Revelation is a lot like going to the most mind-blowing, extravagant brunch buffet you've ever been to in your life. I mean, there's not enough time, much less room on your plate to even take a little taste of of all of them, even a quarter uh, of them. Uh, But they're all this feast of hope. And if there's anything our world needs, 
it's hope. And Revelation shows us that what we have in this passage and the final words of the creed is that very thing, hope. First of all, there is a living hope, a hope, the end of history, that if it's brought into the center of your life, will help you face anything. Because we'll look at it under four headings. We all need a living hope. Second, there is a living hope. Third, the nature of that hope. And fourth, we're told how we can receive this hope. So let's dig in uh, to the text. There's no way I can cover all of it today. I want to get you right to the essentials. We all need, you, me, everybody you know, needs a living hope. Now, when you read the book of Revelation, one of the biggest mistakes is to think that the book is some sort of code about the end times and we have to break the code before it's too late, like it's some sort of cosmic escape room. When John wrote Revelation, at the end of the first century, he was now a very old man, and according to some traditions and the writings of Diocletian, uh, you know, uh, he was, they even tried to kill him and it didn't work. He's the only surviving apostle who wasn't, wasn't martyred. And at uh, the end of that first century, uh, the emperor Domitian, uh, that's not where Doberman pinchers come from, uh, the, the emperor Domitian came to power in Rome and he began the first systematic persecution and attempted destruction of the early uh, Christian movement. He began a wide-scale, intense persecution of Christians. So the people John is writing to, he records this revelation and sends to, these people were right on the cusp of experiencing a tidal wave of death, mourning, and suffering. To help them face it, Almighty God, through his servant John, gives them this living hope that we heard about in the scripture already this morning. We all know that to some degree or another, hope in the future makes it possible to face hardships and difficulties in the right now. It makes it possible when you know that everything, even your greatest sacrifices, your most devastating losses, have in the end meaning and purpose because you can see them in perspective to this beautiful, amazing future. So, <clears throat> imagine two people uh, are hired and they get the same awful job. I mean, it's 
a terrible job. Miserably long hours. No benefits. Horrible conditions. No vacations. The place stinks and they have to work with and for idiots. He's talking about my job. Now the first person is told, and they take this job, at the end of the year, you will receive $25,000. The second person is told, at the end of the year, you'll be paid $25 million. And they both go to work. But you know what? They react to those conditions very, very differently, right? I mean, after three weeks, the first person says, this is not worth it. I'm out. And they quit. But the second person with $25 million in view says, this is a breeze. Bring it on. It has, why? Because it has nothing to do with their present It has everything to do with their future. And the promise of $25 million keeps the second person going to a much greater effect than 25 grand as it would you or me. And that's what John is saying in the entire balance of the book and in our passage this morning. And he's, he's, he's looking to them and saying what you're facing, I mean, the, 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 the hard part of life as it is, but what is coming is going to be awful, but at the end there is a mind-blowing reward. But the kind of hope I'm talking about this morning is not the hope of a big payday. To face all that's about to come, the early Christians needed a hope that was optimistic and powerful, yet totally realistic. A quick example that's drawn from the Bible that they would have read in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel, 600 and some odd years uh, before Christ, the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem and they conquered uh, the Israelites and they carted off thousands of enslaved prisoners. And their king, the Babylonians, was a psychopath named Nebuchadnezzar, and, uh, or at least a megalomaniac. And he had this enormous statue of himself constructed after their victory, as sort of happy victory to me. And then he, he put together this crazy jackwagon band that uh, played this really wackadoodle music, the way it's described. It would just be this blaring cacophony of sound. And, but when you heard the music, You had to bow down and worship his statue. (laughs) Hello, God complex. Well, for three of the young Hebrew prisoners, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, young men who've been taken captive to Babylon, this was blasphemy. And they weren't about to worship this Nebuchadnezzar kook. So the king, and they made it known when music played, everybody bowed down, they said, I'm not in, and the guards grabbed them, and they were brought before the king, and they were sentenced to die in the fiery death chamber furnace thing, 
and it was heated so hot that when the guards were like working around it, they were killed by the flames. It's just nuts. And they're given, recorded here, their final words before sentences passed, and they're tossed into the furnace. Daniel 3, starting in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the beginning, from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And here is probably the most self, deeply, deeply, faith-driven statement in the entire scripture. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that, if, that you've set up. But if not. And they were thrown into a fiery furnace. in their heart, knowing, come what may, God will take care of us. And that's a hope that is completely optimistic, yet totally realistic. And that's the kind of hope that you and I need when we're facing anything. Because this living hope Secondly, is real and it's powerful because John wrote this book to people who were about to go through a terrible storm. A storm that involved, I mean, some of them were impaled on stakes and lit as torches to illuminate parties for the Roman elite. They were fed to lions. They were buried alive. And believe it or not, there were even worse things that happened to them. They saw horrific things done to their spouses and children and parents. It was a terrible, horrible, awful time of persecution. And John knew this is what they are going to need. And the simple fact of history is it worked and persecution failed to weaken the Christian movement and historians all agree it actually caused the great rise of the Christian movement as the world witnessed Christians singing while they were per being persecuted praying for the people who were killing them and then when the plagues came throughout the late Roman Empire, ravaging cities in those first couple of centuries after Christ, when everyone was fleeing to get away from the contagion, the Christians stayed, and some of them even moved in to the cities where they died, taking care of the people who were sick, and the watching world saw it and said, this must be for real. These people must really believe in this Christianity 
thing. I, I must investigate it. And this is why Tertullian, one of the early Christian historians, wrote a famous phrase, it's the blood of the martyrs that's the seed of the church. <clears throat> Where on earth do people get this kind of durable persecution, death, proof, hope? What kind of faith enabled them to face pain and grief and suffering and death on an unimaginable scale? Certainly something greater than $25 million at the end of the rainbow. They had a living hope. Now, it's probably a safe guess that nobody in this room will ever be thrown to hungry lions. And even though the economy is good, and look at you, you're also young and svelte and sleek, There's no escaping the fact, though. Every one of us in this room will face loss, death, pain, and suffering. So the hope that helped the early Christians face what they face can surely help you and me no matter what may come. So let's take a look, third, at this living hope. And the first thing that we've got to grasp is that this is an already but not yet hope. Already but not yet hope. That's extremely important. And we find it in the verb tenses. This is where it pays to be a word nerd. What do we have? Future tense. Look with me. He will wipe away every tear. But right now, there are still tears. Am I right? Death shall be no more. But right now, there's still death. For the former things have passed away, but the former things are still here. The curse and all of its influence. All those things are in the now and the future, but suddenly, or in the future, suddenly then, in verse 5, it switches. Behold, I am making all things new. This isn't in the future tense. It's in the present tense. Where does the newness start? It's present. He's saying, am making. It means he's already begun. Not finished, but definitely started. And where's it all come from? The throne. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, therefore, is already coming. Already, but not Yet, to the degree that you and I come under the throne of God, to the, true, 
to the degree that you bring your heart and your relationships, your friendships, your marriage, your children, your family, your community, your business, your art, your money, under the lordship of Jesus Christ, there will be a renewing, and it starts now, but will be completed later. Present and future tenses, experiencing with him the renewing of all things. And this concept is really important to hang on to because it's what keeps us from being unbalanced. I mean, you know the type. Well, there's nothing good can happen. You might as well not pray for anybody's healing or anything good because this is a terrible place. You might as well not work against poverty. You might as well not do anything about injustice because the world is such a terrible place and get off my lawn, right? You know the type. Unbalanced. But utopian thinking is equally as unbalanced. Oh, utopia is impossible if we just try harder and harder, if we just put all these social programs into place and unlock our human potential and all the human problems of the world will be solved. And that's every bit as imbalanced. 66 years ago, Jonas Salk, upon discovering the cure of polio, declared this is the beginning of the end of all human problems and all the fears that beset mankind. I don't know about you, but 66 years later, I still see and I still have a lot of fears and problems. Living hope is what gives us balance, not utopian, but not cynical. Living in the tension between the two, this means that this already, but not yet, are at the same time. Imagine two people who, as a result of something happened, are, are now find themselves their entire life in wheelchairs. One believes, the only way I know, the only way I can have hope is to know that medicine will one day cure me. The others are saying the only way, the others saying the only way I can deal with it is to accept the fact that I'll never be cured. Never, 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 never. Which is the Christian way? Well, really, it's neither. The gospel is actually much more realistic and far more optimistic. Because the gospel comes in and says to everyone, not just people in wheelchairs, to every one of us, it's not just your body or your employment or your situation or your finances. It's, it's not that, you're, that that's broken, it's that your soul is broken. And it's under a curse. And that you and I are in such bad shape that we need the Son of God. And that he had to come and be broken for us and broken for our broken bodies and broken for our broken hearts and dreams and situations. And if he was broken for you and me, then you, by trusting him, can face any brokenness in the right now and in tomorrow with hope 
Because this world is temporary, friends. No, no matter who you are or what shape you're in, what we see and experience right now is not the end of all things. Because the Christian is able to say, look, I know that I will walk again. And not only that, I'm not only going to walk, I'm going to run. Not even that, I'm going to walk and run, I'm going to fly. Because when Isaiah looked at this hope, he said, and in my translation, I'm reversing the order. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. And they will mount up with wings as eagles. As eagles, not weasels, eagles. Having, having that kind of day. Yeah, sorry about that. Because look, the genesis of this hope is handed to us by giving us perspective, perspective that we vitally need. Maybe medicine cures some people. I'm not against medicine. Praise God for the physicians that are here and the goodness that you continue. And, but we all know, you know, God does the healing. The physician just sends the bill. Right, Joe? Okay. <laughs> Shannon. And maybe medicine does cure. And that's, that's great. And perhaps they'll walk again in this world. But for sure, those who place their hope in Jesus Christ will walk in the next and forever. Look at verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, only in apocalyptic literature would you ever find a city wearing a dress, coming down the aisle, in a sense, beautifully dressed for her groom on her wedding day. Is this weird? Well, maybe a little, but here's what it really means. Because this is, this is our future. When the Bible talks about a flock, that's us, God's flock. When it talks about a house, that's us, God's house. When the Bible talks about God's family, that's us. When it talks about God's city, that's us. We're the city. We're not talking about buildings here. That's not what makes a city. It's people. And in this case, God's people, that's us. And our future is an urban future. The Bible began in a garden, but it will end in a city. Not an acreage, not a remote mountain cabin somewhere, as much as that would be my vision of heaven, uh, a city. And this is how gritty this is. God's salvation is not you and I being taken out of this world to a whole different thing called heaven. No, God's salvation is heaven pulled down into our world to redeem and renew and transform it. Because notice where the throne is. It's not in a suburb. It's not in a garden. Because suburbs and gardens are not generally filled with every tongue, tribe, tongue, people, and nation. But cities you can't avoid the family if you want to help people because as the family goes, so goes people. And you can't impact the culture unless you love and work with cities because as cities go, so goes a society. 
So what are we to do in this great city that's our future, not yet, but on its way? The same thing that God does to wipe away every tear. To bring the kingdom of God into every kind of emotional and spiritual and social and physical brokenness we encounter. Okay, back to the bizarre vision of a city in a dress. John's using a pretty daring for the time metaphor because he's actually getting down to the idea of God's people being like a woman and a, a bride. I mean, that's what they would have said, a woman? Because it was so second class back then, which is not the case in, uh, in God's heart. A bride coming down the aisle wearing the spectacular dress. And wedding dresses are pretty much the same around the world. Now, they may not always wear white. They may not have the exact same tailoring and fashion design and, you know, empire waist or mermaid thing or all that kind of jazz. But they're special. Every culture has special wedding garments. And the whole point of the wedding dress Ladies, am I right? Married ladies, to make you look as beautiful as possible on that day. Wedding dresses haven't changed all that much for so long. Why? Because they pretty well got it right. So the city, that's us, coming down the aisle in a wedding dress, and what does Jesus say when he sees married guys what did you say when you first saw your bride now if you had the pictures taken ahead of time you probably did it and you had that like little private reveal we did we had a little private time in a, in a little room it was really great and and even now uh, you know photographers uh, they they want to be present and capture that first moment particularly in his eyes when he sees her. Click, because it's a look unlike any other look. Because you married guys, you stood there and you didn't, when those doors opened and she stepped out, you didn't go, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I guess I didn't look out. No, you were like, yeah, if you could talk at all. <laughs> I remember thinking, this can't be true. This is so great. She looks so amazing. No. And when Jesus looks at us, it's the very same. It's when a groom first sees his bride. It's this telness that Jesus Christ's heart leaps when he sees us. And he can't contain himself. And he wants to run down the aisle and grab us. He's crazy about us. Our future is a spousal sort of love. And it's not by accident that true, real spousal love is the most intense, real, tangible durable kind of love there is. The reason God puts the bride and the city 
together in this picture is that without the deep experience of that love in your life and mine, without knowing love like that, you and I can never be any good to this or any city because no one can overcome prejudice on their own. But when you're in the city amongst all kinds of people, no matter what your position is, no matter where you are on the spectrum of conservative or liberal or middle of the road, or Asian or Hispanic or or black or white, or whether you're first generation or 10th generation, unless you know this kind of love, you are gonna despise somebody. But this total kind of spousal love drives out all hate, every molecule of it. There's no room for hate. And hate is really and truly the root of all evil. Prejudice, envy, greed, malice, lust. Unless you know this sort of spousal love, you can't love people for their sake. You'll only love people for your sake, to feel good about yourself, to fulfill some sort of selfish agenda. Think about it. If you're married, do you love your spouse for your sake? Because it makes you feel good? No. That's one of the primary reasons so many marriages fail. Because real spousal love loves your spouse for their sake. Real love is selfless. The other kind is selfish, all about me. What's in it for me? Real love puts self last. Real love will sacrifice everything, including life itself, for the one you love. Only when you know this kind of spousal love, and I don't mean with your mate, this is a picture with your mate of the kind of love that John is trying to describe that by the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, He's building in anyone and everyone who's looking to him. You'll never, never, never be able to get your hands dirty in a city, much less endure any kind of hardship that would make any kind of a lasting difference without this sort of intimate love of God at the heart. No way you could endure hardship, rejection, or persecution if you don't know that you know down deep in your knower that God himself is wildly in love with you and the intensity of that love and the intimacy will be in the intensity of that love and intimacy then will everything be made right you can trust that the one that loves you is going to make it right You may not understand it all right now, but he will one day make everything as perfect as your wedding day. We're the city 
We're in a wedding dress, and Jesus is the groom. Vivid, wild, crazy love. How can you and I have this kind of hope that John is imparting to these ones then and down through time facing the harsh realities of life on this third planet from the sun? Where does it come from? And speaking of hope, this is the shortest point of the sermon. It doesn't say the good. It doesn't say the just. It doesn't say the moral. It doesn't say the smart. It doesn't say the honest. It doesn't say the conservative. It doesn't say the liberal. It says who? In verse 6, who gets this living hope? The thirsty. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Here, take it and continuously quench the thirst of your soul without cost because I've already paid for it. So how do you get this hope? (laughs) You say, I'm thirsty. Trust that the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who lives outside of time has made you through his work totally acceptable to the Father. That's the it that he has done on the cross for you and me. Trust him and this living hope will be yours and it will get you through anything life throws at you. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.